Well, good morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder this morning of your grace. It seems like that pervaded everything this morning, and it makes me grateful to be at Abundant Life. Just to be reminded of that in worship, uh, to be just reminded of your great grace and your great love for us, your great faithfulness to us. And Lord, I pray that you would take us to places of um, where our feet would walk, where we would step out in faith and we would answer the call that you have on our lives to serve you and to be used by you in this community and beyond. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, Abundant Life. It's such a great privilege to be back up here in front of you. Uh, I love getting the opportunity to share at this church, and I'm grateful that I have that opportunity. Um, I um, uh, just every time I I get up here, it, it, I count it such a privilege. So thank you for letting me share this morning. I want to share from the Word, and I want to share in response to the last couple of weeks uh, that Gary has spoken. He's titled his sermons "What Is Happening" and "What Now." And one of the things he said last week in "What Now" was the mission continues. Remember that point he made? The mission continues. And one of the things God had been stirring in my heart uh, that that sort of confirmed was that I needed to come and just talk about the the clarity of what that mission is this morning. So we're going to talk about something that should be very familiar to each and every one of you if you've been in the church for any amount of time at all. And if you've been to a church where you've never heard this, it was the wrong church because I'm going to share with you the mission of the church according to scripture this morning. Well, one of the things I'm most excited about also, uh, that now that it's February, and the fact that we live in California, is that in California, oh, it's March, isn't it? Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Forgot about leap day and everything. In February, it's baseball season in California already. And so, one of the things I've loved the last six years that I've lived here in California is that I've had the opportunity to coach my boys in Little League Baseball And I just love coaching Little League Baseball. Uh, I love getting the opportunity to be a part of their development as players and just a part of their childhood. And for me, Little League Baseball carries such special memories. And so the opportunity to coach Little League Baseball, not just in the summer, but in February, is fantastic. So I love the weather. I love to coach Little League Baseball. And one of the things I've learned as a Little League Baseball coach is, especially when you're coaching the seven, eight, nine-year-old range, the success of your team is largely dependent on the seven, eight, and nine hitters. Or, or, or technically in Little League Baseball, it's the eight, nine, and ten hitters. Your, your success is dependent a lot of times on those guys because sometimes you have teams where those guys just, they may muster one or two hits all season long. And it can be very challenging to draw out of them enough so that your team can compete. And when it comes to the Christian life, when it comes to the mission of our church, I feel like some of us, because of the different ways that we view our knowledge of the Bible, our understanding of our spiritual life, maybe our fears about where our spiritual life is, we view ourselves not just as eight, nine, and ten hitters, but maybe we view ourselves as bench warmers, where we, we have this timidity or this fear about stepping up and saying, I think God can use me. And this morning, I want to kind of act as your coach. And as I speak about the mission, I just want to encourage you to get in the game. Because in the kingdom of God, there are no bench warmers. There are no eight, nine, and ten hitters. If you trust the words of God, 
from the front of the room to the back corner to up in the balcony, you're all cleanup hitters. You are all prepared and equipped to be a part of the mission of God because it is the mission that he's not just given to his church, but it's the mission that he's given to each and every one of us individually. And so let's read about that mission. Matthew 28 verses 16 through 20. We have one universal mission as the church and as members of the body of Christ. And this is the great commission that Jesus gave us. So in Matthew 28, verse 16, it says, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. We all have those doubts. We all feel doubts. And even Jesus' disciples in this moment, when they're seeing him after his resurrection, some still doubted. But in spite of that, Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's our great commission. This morning, I'm going to pull out three really simple points out of this great commission. Number one, Jesus had all authority. Number two, we are called, we must be radically committed to discipleship. And number three, if we are committed to that, if we trust his authority, we will multiply. Every one of you will multiply. And so first, Jesus has all authority. Emphasis on the period. The period is bolded. You can't really tell, but Jesus has all authority. So there are two types of authorities that when I thought of the, the, the concept of authority this week, there's two different types of authorities. One would be somebody who knows a lot about something. Take like the weatherman, for instance. You tune into TV, you want to know about the weather. They've learned a lot about the subject. They have a ton of instruments at their disposal. They, they have the National Weather Service to tap into. They have the maps that they can read. They have an authority on the subject because they've studied it. But the interesting thing about the weatherman is all they can do is report to you on the basis of their knowledge some recommendations as to what you might need to do for each and every day. But they don't have any authority to change the weather. They don't have any authority to actually change what's coming tomorrow or next week. In fact, if you look at a 10 or 15 day forecast, a lot of times that changes day by day based on the new things that they're reading and the new patterns that they're observing. But there's a second type of authority and that's the authority of a coach. As a coach, if he reads his team and looks at his team, the coach is the only one who has the authority to change the lineup. The coach is the only one who has the authority to put someone in or take someone out. The coach is the only one who has the authority to make the decisions that may actually change the game. And so when you think about the concept of authority and that Jesus has all authority, Jesus actually makes a radically profound yet simple statement here. And a lot of times when we get into the Great Commission, we skip right over it because we want to get to the part where he says, go and make disciples. But before he says, go and make disciples, he says, I have all authority. 
when he says this, what he's saying is, I don't just have the power, or I don't just have the knowledge, the expertise to recommend that you do this, but I have the power to send you out and I have the authority to give to you so that your mission will be successful. So when Jesus says, I have all authority, he means it. It is a radical statement and one that should have been to his disciples an obvious statement. But he said it because in the previous sentence, it just said, some still doubted. So he had to remind his followers, I have authority. See, authority was a really, really important issue in the book of Matthew. If you look at Matthew 21, verse 23, you'll see that the authority of Jesus was actually of paramount importance in the book of Matthew. Matthew 21, verse 23 says that when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? See, Jesus was teaching in the temple area and possibly there were thousands and thousands of people there. I read one, one uh, account that said up to 200,000 people could have fit into the temple courts. And so Jesus is teaching to a lot of people. And there are people who thought they had the authority over those temple courts who were questioning Jesus as to why he thought he had the authority to come into those temple courts and teach. Now see, they should have known the answer to this. And in fact, they probably really did. My family and I, we have a, a sort of a game that we play around the table. We have a set of cards that uh, we'll ask each other after dinner. And they're called, I should have known this. And so we'll ask each other questions, they're on the cards, and the answers are often things that when you get the answer wrong, but then you hear the right answer, the first words out of your mouth are, I should have known that. And that's what Jesus is saying here, or, or the question that they're asking, the response is, they should have known this. They should have known, because Jesus flips it around, and if you know the story, when they question him on his authority, Jesus says to them, I'll answer you if you can answer me this. By whose authority did the teaching of John the Baptist come from? And he knew he had them cornered. Because if they answered that John the Baptist's teaching was from God, then Jesus could have said, then my authority is as well. The people would have known that they would have been acknowledging that Jesus' authority was from God because John the Baptist himself said that Jesus is... A, Authority came from God. John set up Jesus' ministry. He said he came to prepare the way for Jesus. And so they would have been trapped if they answered that way. But if they said John the Baptist's authority wasn't from God, then the people would have revolted because the people viewed John the Baptist as a great prophet. So Jesus had them in a position where there was no right answer. And what it exposed was the Pharisees didn't want the answer to this question. They knew the answer already. And they had already rejected Jesus and they had rejected the authority that Jesus was preaching on. But they wanted the power and control over the temple area, so they were trying to get rid of him. And we know how they ended up getting rid of him, or at least they thought they did. But the authority of Jesus is a huge issue. And so what I did was I looked through Matthew and at the, at the risk of... Uh, this being a little bit long, I just pulled out every reference to authority that happens in the book of Matthew. So I got to put on my readers so I can read this correctly. Uh, but here we go. This is the authority of Jesus in the book of Matthew. Chapter one, he's called Emmanuel, God with us. Chapter two, 
the wise men came to worship him. Chapter three, Jesus is greater than John the Baptist because he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Chapter four, authority over the devil is what Jesus had when the devil came to tempt him. Matthew five through seven, Jesus taught like one who had authority. Chapter eight, the centurion asked Jesus to just say the word because the centurion understood that Jesus had authority over his servant's sickness. Chapter eight, Jesus drove out evil spirits with a word. So just a word of Jesus had authority. Chapter eight again, he calmed the storm in the boat. So he's an actual true weather authority who had the power to change the weather. Chapter nine, while healing the paralytic, Jesus said, so that you may know the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. It's also in chapter nine, the sick woman was healed just by touching Jesus's robe. Chapter 10, Jesus sending out his disciples says that he gives them authority over unclean spirits and to heal every disease and sickness as well as to go and teach the good news of the kingdom of God. He gives them authority. Chapter 11, Jesus has authority to give your soul rest. Chapter 12, Jesus has authority over the Sabbath. Chapter 14, Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves, and then he walks on water. Mic drop. Um, (laughs) Chapter 16, he had authority over the Pharisees' teaching and even over the gates of hell. Chapter 17, at the transfiguration, Jesus has authority even over the laws of physics when his body is transfigured. Chapter 19, he has authority over eternal life, for there's no other way unto the Father but through him. Chapter 20, he healed blind men just by touching their eyes. Chapter 21, He has authority over the kingdom of God because the prophet said about him that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone has authority. Chapter 24, his authority will be on display at his return when he comes on the clouds with power and great glory. Chapter 27, he had authority in death. The temple curtain was torn in two. There was a huge earthquake. Many saints were raised from the dead. And in that moment, the centurion who was overseeing his death said, surely, truly, this man was the son of God. So he had authority in death. And chapter 28, he had authority over death. At another earthquake, On the third day, an angel appeared to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary saying, he has risen. He has risen from the dead. And then he appeared to these women and they grabbed their feet, his feet, and worshiped him. He had authority over death. Jesus has all authority. So let me ask you this question. Does he have authority over your life? Or let me flip it around another way. What parts of your life do you worry that Jesus doesn't have authority over? We all have fears and doubts like the disciples when they came to him, even at his ascension. 
We all have those fears and doubts. But Jesus says, I have authority. So whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through, whatever changes are happening in your life, Jesus has authority. When there's a change in leadership at our church, Jesus has authority. The authority of Jesus produces faith. When you look at all these accounts of the authority of Jesus in the book of Matthew, what you see is that when Jesus demonstrates his authority, the people respond in faith. And the same is true for us. When we get a taste and a glimpse of the authority of Jesus, it deepens our faith. It draws us to greater trust in him. And we truly start to walk by faith. Not because we have the power and strength in and of ourselves, but because we trust his authority. So should the Pharisees have known this? You better believe it. They saw it throughout the book of Matthew. Should his disciples have known this? Absolutely. And should we trust this? Absolutely. Jesus has authority. And so, moving on from his authority, his authority then enables us, according to the Great Commission, to go and make disciples. The authority of Jesus is just not some random power that gives us to do crazy stuff. For instance, my little five-year-old, Bodie, who I've probably talked about before, I probably always have an illustration about Bodie, but this week, he was laying on the floor, we'd asked him to do something really small, and he's just laying there on his back, and he's like, I wish I just had the force. (laughs) And he says it multiple times to me, so dramatic, I wish I just had the force. Because he wanted to move something upstairs that I told him to take upstairs. Sometimes we wish we had random authority like that. But the authority that Jesus is talking about is not just random power. It is the power to go and make disciples. So he says, go and make disciples of all nations. A disciple um, is, discipleship is what we must be radically committed to. We must, as believers, be radically committed to discipleship. And Jesus, in saying, I have all authority, what he's saying is, I'm granting you all authority to go and make disciples in the realm in which you operate, in your spheres of influences, in your day-to-day life. He's granted us authority to go and do one thing, and that's make disciples. And that call goes out to all of his disciples. In Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, it says that the, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that we have accessible to us when we step out in faith and we seek to make disciples. It says that that Paul prays that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those of us who believe. And it's the power that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. So that resurrection power is what, when we say, you know what, I'm gonna take Jesus's great commission seriously and I'm gonna go and make disciples, that resurrection power is what we're saying, we're going to rest on that authority of the resurrection of Jesus to go and make disciples of others. He doesn't just give us a command that he doesn't also empower us to go and do. So Jesus is like our coach and he's saying, I'm putting every last one of you into the game. No matter whether you feel prepared or not, I'm putting all of you into the game of making disciples. 
I'm, I'm saying you're in my lineup. From the front to the back, to the corners, to the top, we are all a part of this mission to go and make disciples. So two questions that I have for these next two points. Number one, we need to know what's a disciple. And number two, how do we go and make them? So first, if we're gonna be radically committed to discipleship, we need to ask ourselves, what's a disciple? And I'm gonna keep this really simple. Jesus says in the Great Commission, he says, teaching them to, uh, I'm sorry, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. So a disciple is two things. It's someone who's baptized into Christ and someone who observes everything that Jesus has commanded. So let me explain that further. Number one, to be baptized into Christ. Yes, we do baptism and we get baptized when we have put our faith in Christ. But I think there's a deeper meaning to what this means when we are baptized into Christ Jesus. Listen to Romans 6 verses 3 and 4. He says, all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. So what I want you to see in these verses about baptism is that to be baptized into Christ is to be fully identified with Jesus and everything he has done for you. It's to say, I'm going to be identified with his death and I'm going to be identified with his resurrection. So when we put our faith in Christ, we are identified with death to sin primarily, and we are raised in righteousness to walk in newness of life. We are spiritually resurrected as we are brought from death to life because of our identification with Jesus. That's what it means to be baptized into Christ Jesus. And the overall word that I can think of is the word grace that we sang about, that we focused on. This is God's grace to us. We can be identified with Jesus because God is a gracious God who sent Jesus to be one of us, to sacrifice himself for us, and to conquer death on our behalf. We have victory over death to walk in newness of life. And that's what it means to be identified with Jesus. So a disciple, first and foremost, is someone who gets grace. Someone who understands that they want to surrender to Jesus and be identified with him by faith. There's a theological principle that I think sums up what it means to be identified with Christ or baptized into Christ Jesus. And that's the concept of substitutionary atonement. One, Jesus is our substitute. He died in our place. And two, he's our atonement. He died for our sins. Those are the two most simple things that when I think about making disciples and I think about what I want to pass on to young men and women when I'm on campus discipling, I want to pass on an understanding of that basic understanding of the gospel. Romans 5.8, which says, For God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Y'all, I have seen, and my wife too, I think, more people have the light bulb come on at that particular verse than about any other verse I've shared with students in my 11 years on campuses. That we, while we were yet sinners, God still loved us. And the world, just the, the natural way of thinking infiltrates us when we're 
before we have come to know Christ, the, the, the way that we think is that we have to clean ourselves up to get to God. And the very basic thing that the people around you need to know is that they do not have to clean their life up to get to God. That while they are sinners, and some of you may need to hear this, that while you are sitting there feeling guilty about your sin, God wants to remove the guilt from you. He wants to pull the guilt fully away from you, and he's done that because he bore that guilt and that shame and that suffering and that pain, that punishment on the cross. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Once a person is identified with Christ, to make disciples, the idea of uh, still asking the question, what is a disciple? A disciple is also someone who understands that we are being taught by Jesus and he calls us to teach our disciples to observe everything that he has commanded us. And I mentioned it before, but I think this moves from being identified with Christ to moving into a life of surrender to Christ and for Christ and for his purposes. Surrender to his calling as a, as a whole body to make disciples. That that's what Jesus is calling us to do. And so I look at Mark eight thirty four through 37. And I read, Jesus calls the crowd along with his disciples and he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel and the grace I offer you will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? So Jesus presents this paradoxical truth that when we give up our life, we actually gain it. We gain our life. We gain our soul. When we surrender, when we sacrifice, we gain our life and soul. We gain purpose. We enter into the great mission with one another that he has called us to, to go and make disciples. This week, also, uh, we just finished as a family reading the biography of a man named Eric Little. Eric Little was a runner, the fastest runner in Scotland in the 1920s. And Eric Little qualified for the Olympic team, went to France, and was signed up to run the 100, but backed out of the 100 because his trial, the heat, leading up to the finals was on a Sunday. So instead, he was given the opportunity to run the 400, which was not his main event. And if you know anything about track and field, the 100 and 400 could not be any different. But Eric Little went out and he won the 400 meters in gold. Uh, he, he got the gold medal uh, at the Olympics. But, you know, anybody can be fast. The interesting thing, well, not anybody can be fast, but... A lot of people can be fast. <laughs> Eric Liddell was fast, but Eric Liddell understood something greater about his calling and his purpose. And immediately following the Olympics, he surrendered to the call of, his, uh, to, to the call of God in his life, and he moved to China, where he spent uh, his remaining years serving as a missionary in China. And uh, so he 
potentially could have gone to more Olympics, but he went to the mission field instead. And one of the stories that really impacted me from this book as I read it to my boys was a story about what happened uh, since he went to China right before, um, in the 1930s, right before World War II. Uh, there's a forgotten war between the Japanese and the Chinese where China was occupied by Japanese forces. And as World War II started, the Japanese decided that they needed to take anyone who was not of Chinese national descent and put them into what's called internment camps. Not necessarily like concentration camps, like in Germany, but internment camps where they were isolated nonetheless. And so Eric was placed into one of these internment camps. His family was able to leave right before this happened, his wife and uh, two daughters, and then also a daughter that was in the womb. But Eric stayed behind in China to, to minister and serve the people who were still there, seeing what was coming. And he was placed in an internment camp with 1,800 people. And the interesting thing about this internment camp is it was the size of two, uh, well, I was going to say football fields, but the book says it was the size of two rugby fields. But even so, two rugby fields, two football fields, and there were 1,800 people in this internment camp. And Eric became... Uh, deeply loved by all of the people. They were there for two years. And unfortunately, Eric passed away three months before they were released from this internment camp. But while he was there, there's a story about what he did that just blew me away. And I think is really relevant for all of us as we think about what it means to go and make disciples. I want to read it to you. Eric was especially concerned for those who got sick in the camp. Although some of the best surgeons and doctors in all of China were interned in Weisian, the internment camp. They did not have the medicines and equipment needed to properly treat all their patients. Typhoid, malaria, and dysentery were common ailments. At one point, there were too many sick people to house them all in the hospital. So it was decided that the two patients who had typhoid and were extremely contagious would be housed in the morgue. The two patients were a Catholic nun and a 12-year-old girl. The girl was one of the parentless children from Chefu. So there was a boarding school that was placed into the internment camp where 97 children without their parents were also placed in this internment camp. And Eric began to be referred to by these children as Uncle Eric because he took care of them so uh, graciously and continually. But this girl was one of those parentless children. And Eric could only imagine how frightening it must have been for her to be lying deathly ill in a morgue. In spite of the fact that he might catch typhoid himself, he visited her every afternoon in the morgue. He would cheer her up with stories of what happened in school that day. Several days after the two patients had been moved to the morgue, the nun died, and the young girl remained there alone. Eric's visits gave her the will to live, and eventually she did recover. When I thought about what it means to surrender our lives to Jesus and to give up our lives that we might gain it, this story just kept coming back to me as one that was just so powerful of someone who was willing to risk himself for the sake of someone else who is in great need. And that's what Francis Chan picks up on in his book, Letters to the Church. He wrote this recently. Uh, you might have heard that Francis Chan is uh, moving overseas. Maybe already has done it. I'm not really sure. Uh, but he wrote this book recently about a year ago called Letters to the Church. And he says this, becoming a Christian is a complete and total surrender of your desires and flesh to the higher purpose of serving God's glory. It means you die to yourself 
and you put on Christ. That's what you're signing up for. We can only do this if we understand that we have all authority. We can only surrender our lives to Jesus if we first understand his grace. So what's a disciple? A disciple is someone who's baptized into Jesus and who observes everything that Jesus commanded. But third, how do we make disciples? And the simple answer to that is multiplication. And my third point this morning is that we will multiply. We can have a confident expectation that because Jesus gave us this great commission on the basis of his authority, that we will in fact multiply. So if you're feeling a little bit of tension, feeling some extra responsibility right now, don't because you don't have to go make disciples in your own strength and in your own power. The strength and the power and the authority comes from Jesus. If we say yes to going and making disciples, and this doesn't necessarily mean a vocation change. This means right where you are in your community, seeing the needs around you. If you commit to going and making disciples, just acting with courage and boldness as you deal with the needs that you see day in and day out, you can rest on the authority that Jesus has promised you to know that if you just say yes to the mission that God has given us, that he will use you to make disciples. When I think of multiplication and when I see a picture of multiplication the best, I see it in the early church. Peter said, or Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. There are four generations in this verse. Paul teaching Timothy, encouraging Timothy to find faithful people and asking those faithful people to teach others also. If we saw each and every one of us, if each and every one of us saw our life as a network that we have gained it from someone, someone who taught us, and then we have a network of people that we pass it on to because we want to be faithful to the mission that God has given us, that is how the early church spread and multiplied. And if you look in the book of Acts, it says that in Acts 2 and Acts 5, it says that believers were being added daily. And then I love this verse in Acts 6 verse 7. It says, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. So there's this shift in language in Acts from addition to multiplication because all the people got it. They were close enough to have seen the authority of Jesus, to have seen the miracles of Jesus, there was a deep faith and a deep belief in everything that they had just seen. And imagine if you were a disciple and you saw the ascension of Jesus, you would go and you would tell people about it. And we operate on the basis of that same authority to go and teach people. And so when I think of how to proactively make disciples, we have to keep it simple. I, I put a formula up here uh, just to try to keep it as simple as possible. Discipleship equals grace plus surrender. Just be faithful as you have opportunities to have spiritual conversations. And, and even before those opportunities arrive, be aware. If somebody's freaking out about the coronavirus this week, see that as an opportunity to ask them, why are you afraid? If somebody's freaking out because they just lost 15% in the stock market last week, which 
if any of us have any money in retirement, all of you are now 15% poorer. Congratulations. So if someone is freaking out about that, ask them, what are you afraid of? And see it as an opportunity to then remind them of the hope that we have in Christ. And if you open up those conversations, if, those, if you have a window into a spiritual conversation with someone, what I do on campus, and, and this is my job, so it's a little easier, but I just ask guys, like, hey, you want to grab coffee? I'd love to hear your story. It's not rocket science. Just ask people, tell people that you want to know them. There is a deep longing inside of each and every one of us to be known. And what's beautiful about coming to know Jesus is recognizing that he knows you first. And so that same reassurance that we have in being known by God, that we are his children, we can pass that on by just telling people, hey, I want to get to know you. And then as you get to know them, ask them their story. And whenever I ask someone their story and they tell me about their parents and their background, I then ask, well, tell me about your spiritual background. And it opens this window, this easy window into conversation about, well, let me tell you my spiritual background. And then that gives me the opportunity to teach people about God's grace and then over time to ask them to surrender their life to Jesus. And in the process, doing my very best to model to them a life that is already surrendered to Jesus. None of us are perfect. None of us get this right all the time. Many of us are like the disciples who even come to the ascension after seeing all of these things and still lingering, having some lingering doubt in our hearts and minds. So none of us are perfect, but we seek to continue to bring those doubts and those things under the authority of Jesus and we seek to trust him more and we seek to surrender to him more and what he has for us. And as we do that, we present a picture to others of what hope we have no matter what's going on in our life. So discipleship equals grace plus surrender. We will multiply because we trust, as Jesus says at the end, that he is with us. He says, remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So I have all authority and I am with you. There's this great promise that we have of his power and his presence And then he also says, one reason also that we know we will multiply is he says, go and make disciples of all nations. So there is this beautiful picture, this beautiful multi-ethnic picture of expectation that all nations will come under the authority of Jesus, will recognize that he is the king, that he is Lord of all. All nations, as Revelation prophesies, we will see people from every tongue and tribe and nation worshiping before the throne. And so when we look ahead to that picture, when we look ahead to that beautiful picture of Revelation, we can be reminded that we are going to multiply if we are just faithful to say yes to the Lord. We will multiply and we can have that expectation. So how do we multiply? I want to close with a a story. Um, And it's from the very first time, five and a half years ago, that I 
was preparing to sit down with my first guy that I ever met with on campus at Stanford. And he had just graduated, actually, but I had connected with him. Uh, he was an athlete at Stanford. I would connected with him. Actually, his girlfriend had started meeting with Megan first. And so he had a job right across the street from campus. And we agreed to meet at uh, the Pete's Coffee in Town and Country in Palo Alto. And I get there, you know, I'm, I'm anxious because I've been around, you know, for a month or two. And I've kind of networked and tried to meet people. And this is my first opportunity to sit down and have a one-on-one -on -one appointment with a guy. And I sit down in a chair and there's a couple chairs that are facing back to back with the chair next to me. And I just stick my backpack into the chair next to me. And it bumps into the chair of a woman who was sitting with her back catty corner to me, just like this. And she looks over and she, after her chair is bumped and she goes, bam, and she punches me right beneath the ear. I promise you, first discipleship appointment. God's like, welcome to Silicon Valley. <laughs> but it's what she said next that just, I'll never forget this. She starts to say, when my chair is bumped, children will die. She said it over and over. She moved around to the other side of the table where she's facing directly at my back and she keeps saying it. Over and over, she probably said it five or six times. When my chair is bumped, children will die. And I've never been faced with a situation like this, ever. <laughs> I'm trying to one-up Gary's barbershop story, if you can't tell. <laughs> so, finally, I've never done this before, but I, I just turned around and I said to her, Ma'am, I am a follower of Jesus and you need to stop talking to me. And she never said another word. Two things out of this story. One, think about what she threatened me with because I bumped her chair. The enemy's primary threat to all of us is death. He will scare us to death, no pun intended, when we see the coronavirus and all the panic that has happened this week, it strikes fear. Why? Because at the core, so many people, I think, are afraid of dying. We don't have to be afraid of dying. Because Jesus, in his authority, conquered death on the cross. So my primary encouragement to you as you go and make disciples is... Like I said, I just, there was something, it was the Holy Spirit, I know it had to be telling me to, just putting that in my mind to say that I'm a follower of Jesus. But my encouragement to you is to speak in the name of Jesus. Don't be shy. You know, I went through the first two years of living in Silicon Valley and you feel like you kind of have to be a little guarded about your faith because you're not sure where people stand. Just talk about Jesus. He has authority. When you have opportunity, you know, just be wise and look for those opportunities. Keep your eyes open to share about the hope that you have. And I want to end with this verse in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 17. It says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession, and through us, spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him 
in every place. For to God, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some, we are an aroma of death leading to death, but to others, the aroma of life leading to life. Who is adequate for these things? You might be thinking that very question right now as I'm challenging you to go and make disciples. Who is adequate for these things? For we do not market the word of God for profit like so many. On the contrary, we speak with sincerity in Christ as from before God or as from God and before God. So how do you make disciples? Be faithful to be a witness for Jesus. Tell people about what he's done in your life. Keep it simple. Lead people to the word of God. Be a conduit of God's grace and you will multiply your life. Let me pray. Father, I just pray that you would use this this morning to remind each of us of the great calling that you've given us to make disciples. That we are to go, meaning we step out, we take risks. Going sometimes just means going across a room to go talk to somebody that you put on our heart. And so I pray that you would give us courage. I pray that you would give us motivation to live according to the authority that you have, ultimately the authority that you conquered death. As Paul said, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And so Lord, we do not fear death. We have hope that you will give us eternal life. We know that we have it in you. And so Lord, just help us to be beacons of that light. And this is our mission. God, this is the mission that you gave us when you ascended to heaven. We want to follow you. We want to live according to that mission. We want to be faithful and we want to just have the confidence and trust that you will be with us as we go out and share this message. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close this morning, I want to give you all an opportunity to respond. And so if the prayer team could come, worship team come, uh, if, if y'all could just come forward and if there is anyone who, as I have been preaching this morning, ha- has felt a number of different things. One, maybe you've never, ever understood that Jesus has authority over your life. And today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to come and surrender your life to the authority of Jesus. Others, it may be that you've compartmentalized in your life, that there's a, a, a part of your life that you're holding on to. And we, we go in and out of this all the time. We, we let go and we trust God and then we hold on. But right now, maybe you're, you've compartmentalized and there's something you're holding on to that God just wants you to release to him and trust him with. Maybe you've been fearful because of news this week and because of the virus in the news, because of... Um, financial loss. Maybe there's fears that you've had regarding that. And maybe you just need to come and ask for prayer. And maybe it's just as simple as I need courage to go talk about Jesus. I need courage to say Jesus's name in public. I need courage to reach out to somebody God's been putting on my heart that I've seen for a while. And I know who that might be. And I just have not had the courage to step out in faith. And so for those reasons, 
any of those reasons, please just come. Come to the altar and ask uh, and surrender and give these issues to Jesus. Since we're um, waiting on worship, let me just ask you to take it some time in prayer as well. Uh, if you don't feel led to co- come down, uh, if you do, please come. But take some time. Take some time to just pray and ask God, how might, be, how might you be leading me to take part in the Great Commission? Who is it that God might be putting on your heart right now to reach out to? Maybe it's even just making a more faithful and concerted effort towards one of your children or a family member or a coworker or a friend. Maybe it's just saying, yes, Lord, I will surrender. I will take the Great Commission seriously. Maybe it's saying, yes, Lord, I will trust that you are the one who says you'll make disciples through us, that your word doesn't return void, The pressure's not on us. The willingness needs to be there, but not the power to actually make it happen, that you possess that, Lord. And so God, for all these things, I just pray and ask that, God, there would be a sense of peace and a sense of resolve. As we've heard this message about the Great Commission, and it's one we've heard probably before, certainly a passage we all know. But just when we are reminded of what the mission of your church is and the mission of every individual, we know that you have called us to this mission. And so God, use us effectively to be servants who go out and share the hope that we have within us, that we would be the aroma of life to many that we would offer hope and life to those around us. God, we're grateful for your power. We're grateful for your authority over every aspect of our life. May that not be a, um, a thing that freaks us out, but may it be something that gives us a deep reassurance of how great your love is for us and how great your faithfulness is to us. We love you, Lord, and we pray that you would use us as ministers of reconciliation to the world around us. And Lord, I just want to pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, a couple things as we close out today. Um, Zeke asked me, uh, wanted, wanted to remind me that it's next Sunday after church, right after church in the sanctuary, right, Zeke? Uh, right after church in the sanctuary, the elders will be present for an elders meeting uh, just to continue to talk about things in our church moving forward. Um, and so want to invite anyone who wants to come to that. And uh, don't forget the time change next week as well. That is next week, right? So we'll be starting an hour earlier next week. So um, with that, uh, Go with confidence, knowing that God wants to use your life to be a beacon of his love in the lives of other people. You are sent.